You're listening to the Accenture Insurance Influencers Podcast. In insurance as an industry, I think we can agree, has a little bit of a brand problem. It's either very stodgy, old school, or it's sort of, you know, lizards with an Australian accent. Like it's kind of <laughs> either the consumer brand or it's, uh, you know, folks that, or, or it's sort of grandfatherly uh, images come to mind. Hello, and welcome to the Accenture Insurance Influencers Podcast. I'm your host, Ikrani Yu. My guest today is Caribou Honig. Caribou is the chairman and co-founder of InsureTech Connect, as well as the co-founder of the HR Transform Conference. Thanks for being here today, Caribou. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today, um, and I, I thought I would start with your background, uh, which um, it spans multiple industries, and I think that has interesting uh, implications for what you're doing today. Um, and I wanted to start maybe uh, not quite at the beginning, but at, at Capital One, uh, which is an organization that's known for its data-driven focus. So I'm curious, what did you learn there, and specifically, how does it apply to what you're doing now in InsurTech? I really had the good fortune to kind of cut my teeth for my career at Capital One. I started there in 96, and it was the heyday for the company, the hyper-growth years. So I I was able to extract a few lessons. One is uh, really the importance of talent and the culture you build as an organization and how that drives uh, both the strengths and ultimately the weaknesses of a company. The the founders, I still remember, they allocated 20% of their time to interviewing candidates uh, for the company, all the way through really the whole history of the company. And it was in order to make sure they were hiring the talent that they wanted. Uh, There's still uh, an anecdote I remember uh, that the CEO would put what he'd call the Eureka List, which was around how some individual had so boldly proclaimed that some idea was going to work. And to be at the top of the Eureka List, you had to have that idea champion and have it so amazingly fail in the marketplace. But this was actually like meant to encourage people. This was actually a point of pride to be on the Eureka list, because if you weren't sticking your neck out with ideas that could fail, then you weren't doing your job. So the, the impact of culture uh, is something that I still sort of think about today from those days. Uh, the other more sort of tactical about the company is, as you, I think you said, you know, it's very data-driven as, as an organization. It always has been. And a big part of that is the scientific method, right, was really ingrained into thinking about how to operate the business, right? It wasn't just using the data that was at hand, although it certainly did that, but how it created data, right? The notion of we, we have a hypothesis about how uh, consumers are going to behave, how they'll react to some offer, what their risk will be and once we've actually given them a product. And we might not know the answer, so let's go ahead and do the test and create the data set for that. Right. I think that's really applicable actually to the insurance world as well. Right. Both the talent culture aspect and the notion of you sometimes have to actually create the data rather than just access existing data. That's really interesting to me as well because 
there's this reputation for financial services and insurance in particular as being quite risk averse. And so you've mentioned, you know, first of all, this idea that in order to be on the Eureka list, you had to fail. That's pretty atypical, I think. And and this data-driven scientific method is one where you don't actually know the answer and you're going out and pursuing it, I think is also maybe something that makes incumbents a little bit uncomfortable. Would you agree, disagree? Yeah, it, it should. I think it makes them very uncomfortable. I, and I think that's, that's okay. I, when I think about what are incumbents that might have been you know, around for decades or in a, a few cases, centuries, they're really good at resilience. They're really good at risk management, right? And that's not meant as like a, a euphemism for not actually good at you know, risk. They're actually really quite good at risk management. And that applies for many, many banks, and that applies for many insurance companies and, and the like. But what they're not structurally that good at usually, and there's always going to be exceptions, of course, is nimbleness and agility rather than resilience. They're not going to be as good typically at smart risk taking, right? How to create a culture, how to build a talent pool and that is, you know, the product designs that facilitate taking risks rather than managing risks. Uh, and that that's where you get these openings for the startups to come in um, or other kinds of organizations we'll probably talk about besides startups that uh, can start to, to, to find pockets of opportunity and, and grow them into something interesting. Right, right. Uh, that's a, an idea that I'm sure we'll be returning to uh, later on in our conversation. Um, for now, it um, will bring us back to our walk down memory lane. And um, uh, after Capital, when you co-founded uh, QED Investors, a boutique venture capital firm that, again, um, had a focus on data-driven companies. So same question. Um, how to, what did you learn there? And how does that apply to what you're doing in InsureTech today? Sure. There were probably two big lessons that I learned or got reinforced during my time at QED. One was the impact of a visionary leader and, and how they can drive the success of a company or even catalyze change in an industry. We had the good fortune to invest in many companies that had visionary leaders. Not every leader that we invest in turned out to be a visionary, uh, and a handful were visionaries who you know, maybe couldn't execute uh, on the vision all the time, but you could really see the impact that a, a, a singular top-notch entrepreneur had on the outcome for the company. And, and that's, you know, it's a little bit of um, classic VC wisdom, but I think it's also true, uh, regardless of being classic wisdom, that you're really backing first and foremost the entrepreneur and everything after that comes secondary. The other um, lesson I learned, and this was an insight by one of my partners really to begin with, but you know, at a certain point you start to become like a hammer in search of a nail. When you're spent you know, a decade working in a credit card company, you start to see everything through the lens of, well, that's sort of like the credit card business. When you start to do a lot of insure tech investing, you start to see everything like an insurance uh, kind of play. As a VC, what really struck us was the notion of positive selection 
being the the key to the castle, the same way that positive selection is the key to the castle and lending, the same way it's the key to the castle and insurance businesses, really saw how so much of the job of investing was creating a, a brand and a value proposition about who we were as investors so that the best entrepreneurs and best companies that were and the best fit for us would seek us out or get referred into us so that we could be pretty good at figuring out which companies were great prospects, which maybe weren't, but also just so that we would have a, an amazingly good pool of companies to look at and select from when making our investments, which sounds a lot like, as I say, what you know, the dream is in insurance and the dream is in, in credit card lending. It all comes down to uh, how do you drive some positive selection? So that's sort of a maybe an unexpected um, lesson from the VC side that I think applies uh, to all these risk businesses. Mm-hmm. And I think in, say, the past five years or so, there have been a lot of corporate VC arms sprung up as as subsidiaries or associated businesses of insurance companies trying to maybe capture some of what um, boutique or private venture capital firms are doing. Um, I'm curious, do you feel like there's a difference in how that venture, like how that business is executed? Are there places where maybe the smaller firms are better or the bigger firms are better? What can they learn from each other? So I actually really like and have been, I'll call it surprisingly impressed by the corporate VCs from insurance. Um, And I, I have to admit, I go into it sort of having a a fairly skeptical, maybe dim, maybe cynical view of corporate VC. Like it's hard. It, they, they often are asked to serve too many masters at once. Um, their incentives are often wrong in corporate VC. They often have to have a line uh, operator as one of the champions, and that ends up messing up the timelines. But I've been really impressed that the corporate VCs in insurance are operating for the most part quite smartly, and not just from a an industry knowledge, which of course they've got, but from a process standpoint. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably uh, come back to this a little too often, but it's back to being an adverse selection, positive selection question. If you're an entrepreneur and you have a couple term sheets from traditional, you know, financial uh, type uh, VCs, and you've got the promise of maybe a um, a term sheet from a corporate VC two or three months in the future because of their their process and timelines, you're going to take the bird in the hand, even if everything else being equal, you'd prefer the corporate VC. That means that a a corporate VC that has an unusually long timeline or an unusually onerous process is only going to get a bite at the apple of the entrepreneurs and the startups that the traditional VCs don't give term sheets to. And that's a recipe for adverse selection. So I don't know if it's like explicit in the mindset and the thinking of the corporate VCs or if it's just so deeply rooted in the DNA of insurance companies, the notion of how do we make sure we are always avoiding adverse selection. But I think they, they sort of got the lesson of that internalized and, and for the most part operate uh, in a very industry standard way. Um, so I, I, I like them. I think they've made many of them have made great investments. There have been some real winners out there among the corporate VCs and insurance. So uh, I like what they're doing. 
You're listening to the Accenture Insurance Influencers Podcast with host Igrani Yu. If you're enjoying this conversation, you may also enjoy Talking Agility, a podcast that takes an in-depth look at enterprise agility. Leading experts cover what it is, why it matters, and most of all, how to achieve it. Visit Accenture.com slash Talking Agility. Now, back to the podcast. The insurance workforce um, within incumbent insurers, there's for many years has been a discussion about this talent gap. There's a challenge to attract younger workers. While at the same time, I see a lot of insure techs, um, which tend to skew a little bit younger. And so obviously there there is a lot of interest in the insurance industry, just maybe not um, in the incumbent world, at least maybe not not to the same degree. So I'm just, I'm curious, like how does this technology affect a pretty just looking at the incumbents for a minute, a pretty old school workflow, old school process, old school technology, like how did, what's happening when those two things are, are coming together? So I, I think that InsureTech is really good news for the industry as a whole to start with when it comes to the talent and culture question, uh, because it is drawing in, uh, I firmly believe, an incremental talent pool that previously would not have been likely to consider insurance as an industry, right? In, insurance as an industry, I think we can agree, has a little bit of a brand problem, mm. right? It's either very stodgy, old school, or it's sort of, you know, lizards with an Australian accent. Like it's kind of <laughs> either the consumer brand or it's, uh, you know, folks that, or, or it's sort of grandfatherly uh, images come to mind. Right. And I think that tech by shining a spotlight that there is innovation opportunities here. Um, you know, I, 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 there's at least transformation. I won't call it disruption opportunities, but there's at least some, some real interesting ideas about transformation of this industry, right? particularly led by technology, particularly, in fact, led by, in some cases, some leading edge technology. I think that draws it at least into the consideration set for people. And whether that has them you know, graduating a, uh, uh, from a, a great you know, college comp sci program and going straight into a startup or going to an incumbent first, just what, right? It almost doesn't matter. As long as you're bringing the talent into the industry, mm-hmm. uh, then that talent will start finding ways to do great things. Right? Now, you got to make sure that the antibodies don't come out if they go to the, uh, to the incumbents, right? If I'm really fired up about making a difference in people's lives in insurance and I join a company with 40,000 employees and all my excitement gets snuffed out as the antibodies come out from people who've been there for 30 years, well, that, that's a shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I think that the, the most ambitious insurance companies that have been in the industry for you know, decades or centuries, they do need to be really mindful that they're creating the environment where um, innovators and next generation, very different type of talent um, not just feels at home, but can actually thrive. Right? Uh, and that's that's actually not an easy task from a change management perspective. Definitely. And, you know, I, I think um, a lot of people focus on the technology. There's this, you know, we need to be digital, we need to be customer centric. But as you say, at the end of the day, it's a culture issue. And that's a much more challenging thing 
to change. Um, you'd mentioned that at Capital One, um, culture was really driven by the leadership. They were spending 20% of their time interviewing people and making sure they were getting the right people. Um, any any comments on, you know, if you are this incumbent that has historically not had that kind of a culture, how, where do you even begin? Yeah, I, I think there's there's a few different paths there. And I don't think there's solely one path that works or doesn't work universally. Um, yeah, look, there is a classic you know, build, buy, rent, whatever kind of approach when it comes to the corporate strategy, like intertwined with uh, the talent and culture piece. I think that if you're going to try to build from within, um, which is a, a perfectly legitimate approach, you just got to do it really eyes wide open. Are you going to do it, um, you know, ring fencing, right? Creating a, a group that's off to the side, right? Or are you going to do it like within the existing management structure? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you don't want to do it halfway one, halfway the other, and, and succeed at succeed at it not at all because you're sort of mixing and matching. Um, you know, you got to think about uh, compensation. There's fair critiques. There's downsides of the equity based compensation that startups will use, particularly in their first few years, to attract great talent. But there's also a lot of upside to it, um, uh, including at a cultural level of what you're, what you're doing. And by the way, if you're asking people to work 12 hours a day instead of nine hours a day, then you know, giving them some equity in what they're building, some sense of ownership is actually quite important. How do you do that? Right. Uh, even if you've got a skunk works or a ring fenced group, right, within a a large organization, how do you give the employees of that skunk works some sense of ownership over what they're doing, uh, and and some sort of economic participation in what they're doing? And if you do start to give them some equity participation or you know phantom equity in it, then does that anger everyone who's not in the skunk works, saying, hey, you know, those guys over there are getting it, but I thought I was doing something important, but I'm not getting any equity in in what I'm doing. Right? Do you open a a, a difficult can of worms there? Uh, maybe. Like, you know, the problem with these people businesses is all these people running around. Like, it's not easy <laughs> to actually manage this. Um, if you acquire, right, in, in part not just to get some sort of great product or distribution channel or technology stack, but when you acquire, you're also getting a team. You're getting people with it. You're getting a culture with it too. Mm. Um, you know, and, and especially at, you know, the kind of multiples that you need to, to pay to acquire anything in fintech or insure tech that's succeeding, you really are, are buying a lot more than just the product and distribution that the company has today. You know, so you're really betting on the team that you're acquiring, continuing to, to deliver. How do you do that? Uh, one of my favorite, um, acquisitions that I'm, I'm tracking because I, I have my own thesis about it is completely unrelated to fintech or insurtech. It's the acquisition uh, that Walmart did of Jet.com. I, I think it's super interesting because I think when Walmart acquired Jet.com, they basically put the founder CEO of Jet in charge of Walmart.com. Right? Hmm. So uh, they actually were expanding the the acquisition scope, right, to include in a very important part of the acquirer's company. And 
my instinct is that, you know, number one, right, that's, that's key for like spreading like a retrovirus, the, the culture and DNA of Jet to the broader organization, right? Walmart wants more Jet DNA, not the, not, doesn't want to have antibodies come out and snuff Jet's DNA. And then I, in my own head, bet that the CEO of, of Jet.com is the eventual CEO of Walmart. Right? That's probably a little bit more um, out there as a prediction, but um, I think that if the view is, okay, how do we really set this company up for the, the next 50 years? Well, you know, this is a, ultimately this is an e-commerce company, right? Married to a, a brick and mortar company. Um, and we need the, the DNA. We've got all the, the brick and mortar DNA we'll ever need. Um, we need that, that e-commerce DNA uh, coming on strong. So, you know, when I, if I, if I hear tomorrow that some, 50-year-old insurance company is buying a, uh, a, a succeeding insure tech startup, then uh, I'll be most excited to see what scope of authority that acquired company has and whether they're actually getting to manage a bunch of the acquirer's business, not the other way around. Right. And I, I love this analogy of a retrovirus. Um, instead of seeing the insure tech as being engulfed by the um, incumbent, it's it's the other way around. Not engulfed, but the, the influence moves the other way. And um, the recognition that maybe that is the best path forward. Do you see other types of retroviral therapies to go with <laughs> <laughs> with our well, messy look- analogies? <laughs> I think that any time that a uh, an incumbent is partnering with startups, I think that that's going to create exposure, uh, and particularly if it goes well, uh, that can you know, start to create some beacons and behavioral changes and a sense of what's possible. Um, you know, and I, I think that the corporate VCs play a role in that, but certainly not the only role because I think that there's a lot of commercial partnerships happening. You know, I, I think that. We may come back to this, but I think that there's a, there's a third category of company uh, besides the incumbents and the insure techs, and it's it's basically the tech titans. And I, I loop hmm. uh, I lump some of the um, winning fintechs into that as well. These companies that have the DNA of startups right, grew their business somewhere outside the scope of insurance, but now are starting to somewhere between dabble and encroach in the insurance space. Um, and, you know, I think that that's, that's interesting, again, as an opportunity for an incumbent to sort of start to engage there, uh, maybe engage cautiously, but start to engage uh, because, again, it's a, a chance to, to start to get exposure to other ways of doing business, other ideas, um, other examples of how do you bring risk management and risk taking together, even in a large organization? How do you take resiliency and agility um, under one roof? Mm-hmm. Do you have any uh, comments on how to well to make those things come together a little bit more easily? If you've got resilience on the part of the a fairly large incumbent, you've got the agility of what is probably a smallish startup. What are ways to kind of get those two things connected? And how do you start cross-pollinating the right things versus the antibodies? Yeah. From a business perspective, I think that it 
it often comes down to how do we invest in reducing the risk of being wrong? Right? If I can take the risk of being wrong down to something where it's de minimis, then that gives me the ability to take to do a lot more risk taking without sacrificing my risk management commitment. Hmm. Um, it lets me typically move more nimbly right, without sacrificing my resilience. So for instance, uh, this, this is where I get obsessed with APIs as an example. Right? These are the, the automated program, programming interfaces. They're the kind of glue between different pieces of software. And I've, I like to say that APIs are really a business strategy masquerading as a technology strategy. Because although nominally it's about the technology you're using, really it's a business thesis around reducing the cost of integration between different parts, different modules of your business. And when you reduce the cost of integration or of exposing some capability you've got to the marketplace, down to something that is de minimis, then BizDev, for instance, takes on a totally different look. Right? If I have to do a half million dollar IT integration in order to uh, uh, try out some new data set or some new algorithm or some new claims capability, well, that's not just a half million dollars I have to outlay of IT. Now there's actually a whole decision-making apparatus I need to apply and a sales apparatus that has to get applied by whoever's trying to make that sale to me and so on. And that means then there's also a long timeline for it that probably lasts months right? and so on. Why? Because the minimum cost to try it is half a million dollars. But if the API just sort of is out there already and it's well-documented, so my cost of trying it is, well, if I'm the developer and I want to try, try it out, you know, I just read the docs and you know, maybe uh, register my email and I get to do 10 pings a day. All right, great. Right. I don't even need to have finance. And, and maybe I need to you know, pay $5 a, a, a per ping for it. Right. Great. I can do that on my corporate card. I don't need my CFO to sign off on anything. Right. Great. I don't actually need it to be uh, a salesperson talking to a the purchasing department. Right. So you get this capability tested much more cheaply, and you get the capability tested much more quickly. And, and, and I think that's very, very powerful for enabling uh, the uh, uh, this kind of mix of risk-taking and risk management, this mix of agility and resilience. And, and, you know, and that's not maybe not the only reason, but that is a reason that the uh, you know, the insure techs uh, that are being created like they're they're only going to work through APIs if at all possible, right? Mm -hmm. the, the notion of some sort of you know hard integration is just anathema to the strategy. What out of all of this, like what should insurance players, whether that's an incumbent, uh, an insure tech, or as you say, a tech titan? What steps does this industry collectively need to be taking in order to prepare for a healthy, agile, resilient future? Yeah. So if I have to take it down to one core piece, it, it comes back to one of my starting themes here, which is positive selection. I think that in a risk business, right, 
and certainly insurance is a risk business, as is lending. The really interesting transformations happen when companies build out product innovations that drive positive selection. When a company does that, whether they're a 100-year-old incumbent or a 20-year-old tech titan or a two-year-old startup, that's where the magic can really happen. And it's magical because it benefits the customer and the provider and the whole, the whole value chain. Mm-hmm. It's been really interesting to have this conversation, Caribou. Thanks for taking the time to join our podcast. Thank you. I've enjoyed it, and I hope your listeners do as well. This wraps up my conversation with Caribou Honig, the chairman and co-founder of InsureTech Connect and chairman of HR Transform. In two weeks, I'll pull back the curtain on the folks behind Coverger. Every weekday at 8 p.m. Eastern, siblings Sheffi and Avi Benhuta deliver their slightly snarky, often humorous, and always insightful email newsletter that makes it easy and even fun to stay up to date on insurance industry news. To get notified when those episodes go live, just hit subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. I'm Igrani Yu. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Accenture Insurance Influencers Podcast. To hear more great episodes, visit Accenture.com slash insurance influencers.